Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hi there. This is a special bonus episode brought to you in collaboration with the Class Action Clinic, located in Windsor, Ontario. Check them out at classactionclinic.com. Enjoy! Class proceedings usually invoke images of a large asymmetry of numbers between parties, multitudes of individuals on the plaintiff side, and relatively few but powerful government or corporations on the defense side. Though this is the most common model, it is not the only one that the class action statutes permit. Ontario's legislation also contemplates defendants to act as representatives of an entire class. Section 4 of the Class Proceedings Act, or CPA, allows either party to ask the court, at any stage of the proceedings, to appoint a representative defendant. They need not be willing. This role can be imposed on them so long as the court believes that they would vigorously defend their position, insofar as it aligns with that of the class. Now, this may lead to a bilateral class action, that is, a class of plaintiffs against a class of defendants. And though exceedingly rare, one such action was filed in Ontario last summer by a proposed class of long-term care or LTC residents against a proposed class of LTC homes, as well as the municipal and provincial governments. Now, in what situations do these actions arise and how do they differ from plaintiff class actions? While the idea of a defendant class proceeding was present at the origins of class action legislation in Ontario, their potential remains largely unexplored in both theory and practice. The Ontario Law Reform Commission's 1982 report, on which the CPA was based, devotes only three of its 880 pages to defendant class actions, deeming them sufficiently discreet to merit separate treatment. Now, in these few pages, it contemplates these actions may arise in situations of unincorporated associations, or where individuals unrelated to each other have committed a wrong in common. Now, such cases were anticipated to involve antitrust, securities, or environmental lawsuits. In practice, they have involved Aboriginal land title, conspiracy, fraud, copyright, and also the mere seeking of a declaration. The first case to be treated by Canadian courts was Chippewas of Sarnia Band and Canada Attorney General. Here, a sole plaintiff, a First Nation band claiming title to lands in and around Sarnia that it had never surrendered, asked the court to certify a class of defendants, the 2,200 individuals who had a competing title to, or interest, in the land. Now the interest, which could be traced back to the same letters patent that was issued in 1853, gave the plaintiff a claim against each individual. The court granted certification of the defendant class over the objections of the named defendants who argued that defendants could not be included in a class against their will. The court stated that Section 4 of the Act does not require that all potential defendants be named prior to certification of the proceeding, nor is the provision expressly confined to willing or consensual representative plaintiffs. The second case, Barry and Pulley, was a bilateral class action alleging fraud, conspiracy, and interference with economic relations, involving pilots from Air Ontario and Air Canada. When the former company was acquired by Air Canada, leading to issues in pilot seniority, pilots from Air Ontario asked the court to assign Air Canada pilots as representatives of a class of 1,682 defendants, 
Again, the court agreed on the basis that the plaintiffs had a cause of action against every member of the defendant class, and defendants can choose to opt out and be sued individually. The courts in both Chippewa and Canada and Barry and Pulley found certification of the defendant classes to be both procedurally efficient and to align with access to justice, insofar as the cost of litigation would be widely spread among the defendants. Two more cases were certified a decade later, though of a very different nature. In Chrysler Canada and Gatons, and General Motors of Canada and Abrams, each car manufacturer commenced a proposed class action against its retired employees. In both cases, the manufacturer sought a declaration that it could unilaterally alter or terminate the retiree's healthcare benefits. Both actions were certified for the purposes of settlement. In contrast, the federal court in Voltage Pictures and Salna denied certification of a motion by a group of film production companies who alleged that their copyrights in several films had been infringed online. They brought an action against three individuals who they claimed illegally downloaded the plaintiff's films using peer-to-peer networks. The court found that the pleadings did not disclose a cause of action against any of the three proposed representative defendants. Now, in their usual orientation, defendant classes are designed to facilitate industry-wide lawsuits. In 2014, the Supreme Court decision in Bank of Montreal and Marcotte, however, may provide plaintiffs a different avenue for such litigation. In Marcotte, the court interpreted Quebec's class proceeding rule to allow a representative plaintiff to sue multiple defendants, even if the plaintiff does not have a personal cause of action against each defendant, so long as they represent class members who do. This would be the predicament of the proposed LTC bilateral class action. Not every class member has been wronged by each and every LTC home, though each member of the plaintiff class has a cause of action against at least one of the members of the defendant class. Although Marcotte has not been explicitly adopted in Ontario, it is perhaps a matter of time. Other jurisdictions in Canada do not require that a representative has personal standing in order to sue multiple defendants in an industry. Now, the same underlying reasons for encouraging plaintiff-side class actions operate with defendant ones. Avoid inconsistent judgments, improve judicial efficiency, increase access to justice, and provide deterrence. But these reasons collide in strange ways in defendant class actions. First, distributing the costs of litigation among defendants can actually diminish the effect of deterrence. On the other hand, unlike plaintiff class actions, where the representative plaintiff's and class members are indemnified against losses, no such practice exists with defendant-side proceedings. The consequences of an adverse judgment could be financially devastating. In this light, an opt-out regime that does not require affirmative consent from each class member may cause serious financial consequences and give rise to due process concerns. After all, a defendant class member has little control over their own defense, may be represented by a defendant who is not willing, so long as they are likely to vigorously defend their position, and is liable for both damages and adverse costs. Though treated similarly to plaintiff class actions, defendant class proceedings are peculiar and create awkward tensions in principles that undergird class action legislation. At the same time, they have been used effectively in rather diverse contexts. What is as clear today as it was four decades ago is that they merit a separate study. 
Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.